when patients' blood pressures are recorded as high, even if that may not reflect what their blood pressure is when they're healthy and at home, this is something that we kind of feel a need to respond to and may uh, lead to sending folks home on high blood pressure medicines. When patients are hospitalized, they can end up on new medications, obviously. But sometimes the medication change that occurs may be to treat something unrelated to the cause of their admission, whether that's blood pressure or maybe diabetes control. Then, upon discharge, the patient has a new, intensified treatment regime that may not be in their best interest. This is the phenomenon being explored in a research project published this week on bmj.com. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and welcome to the BMJ Podcast, where today we'll be hearing from Timothy Anderson, internist and primary care research fellow at the University of California, San Francisco. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I was discussing this paper today with uh, clinical colleagues uh, in the office. And the fact that you open your paper with that more than half of patients leave hospital with changes to four or more of their long-term medications really resonated with the GPs. Um, You've decided to research this and you focus down on blood pressure and the prescription of antihypertensive drugs. Why was it you decided to focus down on that category? So I think our... our research interest was really around what happens to chronic disease medications, so medicines that patients are taking for conditions like high blood pressure that they may be taking for many years during a hospitalization for an unrelated uh, cause. Certainly for certain conditions like strokes or heart attacks, there's a lot of reason that the hospital might be a time to focus on changing blood pressure medicines. But we uh, were kind of interested in what happens to these long-term medicines when people come into the hospital for totally separate conditions. So things like a pneumonia where we wouldn't usually expect uh, blood pressure to be part of the main reason that they're in the hospital. And you've looked at this in a particular population, that's people admitted to the Veterans Administration hospitals. Um, Why was it that you chose that particular data set and and that cohort? So I think there were um, kind of two main focuses in looking at uh, uh, the Veterans Health Administration. The first was that the VA is one of the few care settings uh, in the United States in which we're able to look at both inpatient and outpatient care. Um, so most, uh, the majority of veterans who are served by the VA uh, see both outpatient general practice doctors and specialists as well as come in to the VA hospitals. And we're able to track um, both their medical care as well as importantly uh, the drugs that they're prescribed both in the inpatient and outpatient setting, which is relatively hard to do in uh, other settings in the United States. I think the second important part of our population is not just that we looked at the veterans, but that we looked at folks who were age 65 and older. Um, And the reason to really focus on older adults is that these are the patients that we know um, kind of have the highest risk of medication harms, uh, particularly in the post-hospitalization period, and high risks of ending up back into the hospital, as well as high risks of polypharmacy or being on just a very large number of medicines. So that population, I think, is the one in which adjustment of chronic disease medications kind of has the most importance. Yes, and that's who we should be mindful of. How representative 
do you think that population is to other places where this might be happening too? So the VA serves a predominantly male population as well as often a uh, population that has more uh, coexisting condition like health problems than uh, the typical American population. Um, as a result, I think there's certainly more perhaps patient complexity and not full generalizability, uh, for example, to women within our population. On the other hand, I think that to practice in the VA uh, often include uh, medical trainees who may go on and practice in other parts of the U.S. health system and occasionally include physicians who practice both in academic centers and the VA health system. Uh, because we were looking at heavily not just patients, but as well as kind of physician prescribing decisions, I think that uh, though the patient population is a bit different, uh, the doctor behaviors that we see in the VA may be pretty generalizable to what uh, happens in other hospitals in the U.S. And there are no funding decisions or ways that practice are managed um, in VA hospitals that might differ from, from other hospitals in the U.S. Or, or maybe elsewhere around the world? That's a great point. I think there's there's two parts there. One is the VA does have a national formulary, so the medications used in the VA are a little bit more standardized than they might otherwise be in other parts of the U.S. healthcare system. And then the second point is that um, because the VA has both an inpatient and an outpatient system, uh, I think physicians in the hospital are probably better able to look at outpatient care uh, for the VA patients than they might in another health system. Just to illustrate for that, um, in other hospitals in the U.S., if your patient gets their primary care or general practice care uh, from a private practice doctor, the doctors in the hospital may not really be able to have access to those records or those notes to know what was going on in the outpatient setting. The VA, somewhat uniquely, you're usually able to follow folks who get care in both spots. Okay, so that's, that's like a little bit of feedback that people are getting that might might change their practice. So we would kind of hope it might be the best case scenario uh, for having uh, information from the outpatient side. Uh, unfortunately, as our study suggests, we didn't always see that um, prior outpatient uh, blood pressure control uh, was as strong of a factor as what was going on in the hospital. And we'll get onto that in a little bit. But before that, I wanted to dial just a little bit more into the data that you're collecting. Now, you've got some inclusion criteria for this study, and you've already mentioned age. But what were the other conclusion criteria in the cohort that you were looking at? So we wanted to uh, look at folks who had an established diagnosis of high blood pressure. Um, they didn't necessarily need to be on high blood pressure medicines, but that um, there was a history of hyper hypertension in their past. Uh, and then we mainly wanted to focus in on common medical conditions uh, for which they were brought into the hospital that weren't related to blood pressure. So we looked at folks who came into the hospital for pneumonia, for urinary tract infections, and for venous thromboembolism or blood clots, because um, each of these conditions, we wouldn't expect blood pressure medicines to be adjusted. And then lastly, we narrowed in on patients who we had evidence received care regularly in the VA. And the reason for that was really to feel confident that um, the medications that we were able to track and the health conditions we were able to track um, were uh, that this population, we were able to kind of measure uh, both health conditions and medications. Folks who were receiving part of their care in another health system, uh, we might not be able to track so well. So we um, just limited it to patients who we felt confident uh, in 
examining their medicines accurately. And within that, having potentially excluded a lot from your pool, how many people did you end up with in your cohort? So it was uh, just under 15,000 patients uh, pulled from the national VA population in the US. Obviously, this is based on already collected data. Um, But can you take us through what that data was, uh, how it was collected, maybe? And essentially, I suppose, what your measurement is in this study? Yes, absolutely. So the um, first step which we already briefly discussed, was identifying the patients uh, who we wanted to study in our cohort. And once we identified those patients, uh, we needed to collect information both on their past medical history so that we could look at um, how other conditions might impact their care, as well as on their medication use before coming into the hospital. And this involved looking at um, administrative claims, so billing records from both the VA and from Medicare, which is the other primary insurance source in the U.S. Uh, for older adults, and then also looking at VA pharmacy records, so actually looking at the dispensing uh, records from the outpatient VA pharmacies to establish what medicines patients were taking based on when they filled medicines prior to coming into the hospital. That um, gave us a picture of kind of where a patient was at prior to coming into the hospital and required us next to link that to what happened in the hospital stay itself. Um, And this um, was somewhat novel in linking both inpatient and outpatient pharmacy data in order to create a list of admission medications for each patient and compare that to the list of discharge medications or medicines they received when they left the hospital. And this let us identify who was actually sent home from the hospital on either new blood pressure medicines or on increased doses of their prior blood pressure medications. Yeah, and as you say, that's novel and the interesting bit of this paper, I think. How confident were you that um, that linking worked, that you were able to sort of tie all that data up together well? So that's a great question, especially um, as we know that uh, we can't um, always, or that pharmacy dispensing records may not always fully capture all medicines patients are using, especially as patients occasionally miss a dose or skip a dose um, or may not uh, fill things quite on time. So in order to try to feel more confident about our measurement, we went back and we did a chart review where we actually examined um, the electronic health record for a subset of just over 200 patients within our cohort in order to um, read notes from the pharmacists uh, who saw the patient in the hospital. And this was a nice uh, opportunity to take advantage of kind of a natural part of clinical medicine, which is when patients come into the hospital, often it's important for the doctors to sit down with them and collect exactly what medicines they were taking. And this let us compare the pharmacy dispensing data that we used as our primary measurement to kind of a gold standard uh, of medication reconciliation notes. When we did that, we found that um, our approach was quite accurate, both in terms of um, identifying in medicines that patients were sent out on. What we were not as accurately able to capture was um, when patients were had medicines that were stopped. Um, so for example, if a patient's told, don't take this medicine anymore, this doesn't necessarily get captured in the pharmacy database. What gets captured is when they're given a new medicine. Um, and so uh, to, uh, to address that, uh, we attempted to kind of measure how often patients um, 
either were sent home truly on full intensification, so a new medicine, but there are some cases in our study in which a patient may have been sent home on a new blood pressure medicine, but also had one of their old blood pressure medicines stopped. So we've covered the population and the data um, that you had available for your analysis. So can you take us through what you actually did? Um, Obviously, I'd recommend people go and read the full uh, details of that on the paper. It's open access. Um, but can you sort of summarize what you did and what you found for us? Sure. So um, our, our primary outcome was really trying to establish what proportion of patients are sent home on uh, either new or intensified blood pressure medications. Um, and to do this, we, as I mentioned previously, compared the medicines that they were taking when they came into the hospital to the medicines uh, that they left the hospital on. Um, and we did this both crudely as well as uh, adjusting for various uh, patient uh, comorbidities and other characteristics in order to see if we could determine what was driving these intensifications. And so our first major finding was that 14% uh, or about one in seven of the patients in our cohort were sent home on intensified blood pressure medicines uh, after hospitalization. And importantly, uh, just over half of that group of patients uh, had well-controlled blood pressure prior to coming into the hospital. So these are patients whose blood pressure in the clinics uh, before they got hospitalized was under uh, 140 systolic. Uh, these are the patients we'd be kind of most concerned about potential overtreatment. Um, we then looked at whether it was really inpatient or outpatient blood pressure recordings that were driving these intensifications. And what we found was that the strongest kind of predictor of being sent home on intensified blood pressure medicines was having a high blood pressure, a set of high blood pressure recordings in the hospital. And this kind of speaks to, I think, what many clinicians may have seen in their training or see in the hospital setting, which is when patients' blood pressures are recorded as high, even if that may not reflect what their blood pressure is when they're healthy and at home, this is something that we kind of feel a need to respond to and may uh, lead to sending folks home on high blood pressure medicines. Yeah, that's very interesting because out of the hospital setting, you might do, I don't know, some ambulatory blood pressure measurement before initiating treatment or, or, or intensifying it um, hugely. And I think it's hard, hard to know uh, at this point how much uh, your blood pressure in the hospital reflects your blood pressure at home. We know a lot about this idea of white coat hypertension or the fact that you're out blood pressure in the doctor's office may not be the same as your blood pressure at home and sometimes will run high. But in the hospital, uh, that might be a factor. And then other things like poor sleep, things like stress and anxiety and pain from uh, the conditions that brought you into the hospital may also impact your blood pressure. It may drive it higher, or in some cases, when folks are particularly sick, it may drive your blood pressure lower. But it's really hard to say that those recordings uh, in the hospital tell us a lot about kind of the long-term view of the patient. To sum up, you found that uh, a significant number of patients had an increase and intensification of their blood pressure medication to your hypothesis was proven. So 
Um, I suppose, yes, uh, we, we really, I think outside of maybe clinical experience, uh, weren't sure how often that folks are sent home on intensified medications. Uh, it's certainly something I think many both primary care outpatient doctors have seen in practice, uh, their patients coming back to clinic on new medicines, as well as something that hospital medicine doctors uh, may also feel familiar with. But uh, we really didn't have a great sense of how common it would be prior to conducting the study. Potentially, not all of the blame here should be on hospital doctors over prescribing. It may be that some of these patients didn't actually have very good blood pressure control before they were admitted. Um, were you able to look at how appropriate any of these changes in their medications were? I, I say, kind of reflecting back to our results, about half of the folks sent home from the hospital did have high blood pressure at, in the clinic prior to coming in. Um, and so that's the group that it's possible that better blood pressure control in the long term could really be beneficial. What's harder to say, and um, I think what we probably worry about, is whether the right time to address those blood pressures is really during a hospitalization for another disease. Um, and this is where I, we, I think Mike and I will sometimes discuss that knowing that folks' blood pressure is high in the hospital may be a great point to have information and possibly to pass that information on to, for example, the general practice or primary care doctors in the outpatient setting with kind of a, you know, red flag of, hey, your blood pressure, your patient's blood pressure was high in the hospital. Maybe this is something to work on. And that may be a safer approach because really what we know about blood pressure is that it's a marathon. We're really looking for the long-term outcome, not kind of the next day effect, rather than adjusting those medicines in the moment when someone's recovering from a pneumonia or another disease. Absolutely. And were you able to look at how long those additional prescriptions endured for? You know, where people can ramped up to another level of blood pressure medication that stayed there until maybe, I don't know, the next hospital visit? That's a great question. And it's something that we weren't able to look at at this study, but uh, that we're kind of actively uh, following up as our next set of uh, research questions, both that question of how long do people stay on these medicines, as well as um, what is their blood pressure look like down the road when they come back home, when they're sent home on these intensified medicines. So thanks for talking us through your research methodology and what you found. Now, I suppose this is maybe the more opinion-y bit of the podcast. Um, you're a general internist. You're maybe the kind of doctor uh, who's been prescribing this kind of additional medication. What do you think's going on there? What routines or attitudes or, you know, what's going on within the hospital that might be fueling that additional prescription? Yeah, so I think uh, the hospitalizations at time where physicians gather a lot of data around patients. So often blood pressure may be measured three or four times a day um, in a patient who's doing stably and in a patient who's sicker, maybe even more often. Uh, and having kind of just the, that amount of data uh, may well be an physicians to respond. Uh, we've seen this in related uh, issues of having a lot of data, such as daily blood draws or putting cardiac monitors on patients, that um, just the more data we have, the more we feel we need to respond to it. But unfortunately, we don't currently have um, 
any guidelines to really any uh, high quality evidence on the impact of treating blood pressures in the hospital. Um, so it may well be that uh, inpatient physicians are kind of using the best data we have, which is what to do about blood pressures at home and trying to apply that to the hospital setting um, and trying to reach for kind of strict blood pressure targets at home. Unfortunately, at this point, we, we aren't so sure if that's a good or a bad thing, but I think we have some concerns that uh, when folks are acutely ill and recovering from these illnesses, trying to kind of add additional medicines may be high risk for them, uh, both in terms of side effects of medicines of polypharmacy, as well as just confusion on being sent home on the hospital on more and more new medicines. I also think uh, that there's a question on, <clears throat> uh, I think as we mentioned before, how accurate those blood pressure measurements in the hospital are. Um, so if we're treating numbers that may not really be reflective of a long-term uh, chronic disease in a patient, we may not uh, really be getting the results that we would uh, be mentally thinking or mentally aiming for uh, if we're trying to apply outpatient guidelines to that setting. That was Tim Anderson. I also talked to Tim's colleague and co-author on the paper, Michael Steinman, professor of medicine at UCSF, who's also a physician at the San Francisco VA Medical Center. A lot of times blood pressure management in the hospital setting, we, we suspect tends to be reflexive and not dealing with a great deal of thought because of the time pressures. If you ask clinicians you know, about blood pressure management in sort of a calm environment, I think you know, doctors are, are well aware of the long-term issues. But in the fast-paced environment of the hospital, it's one of many things that doctors are dealing with and we suspect there tends to be a reflexive aspect where the number is high, we just treat it, either because we're responding to the number or because perhaps the physician is being called by the nurse, letting them know that the patient's blood pressure is high, and it's just a way of, of responding to the value as opposed to taking the time to really think through the long-term issues. And what we hope that this study will do is sort of raise awareness of these issues and just slow down that process a little more so that Perhaps as clinicians were a little less reflexive in just treating the number and thinking about long-term how this is going to help the patient. Over the years, other people writing in the BMJ have called for an end to those routine observations, ones that Tim mentioned earlier about blood pressure being checked even though it's stable, that kind of thing. How much of a factor do you think that is? My sense is there's probably a, there's a little bit of both in the answer. Clearly, if patients are clinically unstable, then it, you know, and there's concern about severe swings in blood pressure, either either very low or very high, then it makes sense to check blood pressure regularly. But for many hospital patients or patients in the hospital, they're fairly stable in terms of their blood pressure. And there's certainly direct harm in measuring blood pressure in terms of interrupting sleep and creating extra data points that that, that just because of the nature of hospital medicine there is a uh, temptation to act on. Um, so there's probably not a one-size-fits-all answer, but perhaps titrating the, the frequency of vital sign measurement to the patient's actual clinical needs and being sure that we are not over-measuring in a way that is disruptive to patient's sleep and well-being and tempting us to do things that we probably shouldn't otherwise be doing is the right, uh, is the right balance. One of the, the things that got us started down this path of investigating this was just a direct clinical observation where 
in fairly short order, I had two patients of mine who had been hospitalized came back to see me in the geriatrics clinic where I practice and normally had well-controlled blood pressure prior to the hospitalization, but during their hospitalization, their blood pressure had been high, their medications had been intensified, and when they came back to clinic, both of these patients had low blood pressure, one of whom was symptomatic, the other of whom was concerningly low, so I immediately stopped their medications. And this highlighted for me some of the potential harms that we might be doing to patients in terms of causing orthostasis, potential syncope, other medication-related adverse events when they go home, as well as possibly in the hospital in terms of if people are feeling orthostatic or tired, they might be less able to participate in physical therapy and recover from their illness. So it highlighted to me the potential harms of overintensification and got us thinking about how often is this happening and, and what are the predictors and what should we be doing about it. The, the other key point that, that Tim had alluded to earlier is that this question of what to do with people whose blood pressures are elevated prior to hospitalization, and is hospitalization the appropriate time to intensify their regimen? I think it's fairly clear that if someone's blood pressure is well controlled prior to hospitalization, there's little reason to intensify their blood pressure medications except in unusual circumstances um, once they go home, because we know that in general they're doing well. For people whose blood pressure is high prior to the hospitalization, Hospitalization may be a time to improve their long-term disease control by getting them on the path, but there's a risk there. And the risk is that we don't really know why patients' blood pressures were poorly controlled prior to hospitalization. Was it simply that they were lacking the right pharmacotherapy and we get them on the meds and then they'll do well? Were there issues with adherence or goals of care or side effects or other things that we as hospital-based clinicians might not be aware of? We actually risk setting the patient back, either in terms of causing harms or starting them a medication that they're ultimately going to stop or be confused about and therefore is not going to yield any long-term benefit, which is really what we're aiming for. It doesn't mean there's an absolutely that that's intensifying medications during the hospital is always the wrong thing, but it kind of highlights the fact that there are all these contextual factors that are important for thinking about long-term blood pressure control that the hospital clinician may not be aware of. And so in that setting, it may be appropriate rather than intensifying the medications directly to send a note back to the primary care physician, for example, stating, hey, I noticed that your patient's blood pressure was high prior to the hospitalization, regardless of whether or not it was high during the hospitalization. You know, we might think about, uh, about um, working with them to, to improve blood pressure management over the long term. And then the primary care physician hopefully would have a better long-term sense of what the patient's issues are. It can help get them down that path. You've been listening to Tim Anderson and Michael Steinman talk about their research, intensification of older adults outpatient blood pressure treatment at hospital discharge, national retrospective cohort study. That's available now on bmj.com. That's it for this episode. Check out our other new podcast on the dangers that populism might pose to the use of evidence in policy making. That episode will be available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from, so subscribe so you don't miss out on that. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.